Hey, Rachel, wasn't Nightcrawler dead? Yeah, Miles. He got telefragged in Second Coming. Why? He's got a new series. Well, he got better. How? Okay, so you know how his dad is part of a group of demon mutants who've basically been around since the beginning of time? Azazel, right? Right. The same guy who was shooting for world domination by fathering and then neglecting an army of teleporting blue dudes. I thought we didn't talk about that storyline. Yeah, but it got relevant again. Anyway, Nightcrawler's demon dad went on this awesome campaign to become the pirate king of the afterlife, and Nightcrawler had to stop him, so he used the Banffs. Wait, the the little blue guys from Kitty's fairy tale? No, different Banffs. The ones from Excalibur. Those are actually kind of the same ones, but no, these are Banffs from hell. Anyway, Beast accidentally opened a dimensional portal in the basement of the new Jean Grey school, so now they hang out on campus and they mostly just teleport around and steal Wolverine's whiskey. Oh, those Banffs. There are two sets. There are red ones who hang out with the Zazel, and there are the blue ones who are Nightcrawler's bros. And those guys ended up merging sort of Voltron style to build him a new body. So he's back now. Huh. He might not have a soul, though. What? I'm Rachel Edden. I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the fifth episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about Giant Size X-Men number one, for the most part. And this is basically the beginning of the bronze, or modern, depending on who you ask, era of the X-Men. Giant Size X-Men number one came out in 1975, and at this point it's been about five years since there's been a new issue of X-Men. The last issue of the Silver Age, number 66, came out in, um, I think, 1970, and they've just been doing reprints. Right, so they've just been, you know, essentially, they went into syndication. They've just been rerunning comics and reselling them, which I guess was a thing you could do back then. Now, they're going to continue the Silver Age numbering, so from Giant Size, we're going to go into number 94, but... This is a standalone. This is number one. And uh, that could be kind of confusing to the casual reader, but uh, at this point, X-Men sales were not so hot. Now, by today's standards, X-Men was selling ridiculously well, even at its lowest, but today's standards were not the standards of back then, when a lot more people were buying comics. So, X-Men, at a couple hundred thousand, was one of the lower sellers in Marvel's superhero line, and it effectively got cancelled. But, in the mid-70s, they started doing these giant-sized specials, including 1974's giant Size Man-Thing, which remains the best-titled comic ever. Also the best trivia team name and the best name for, you know. So Giant Size X-Men number one is taking this failed comic and it's doing something really audacious, which is basically reinventing it from scratch. For practical purposes, there are only two carryover characters, Cyclops and Professor X. And other than that, they're making an entirely new team. So we should uh, talk about some of the setup of uh, how they they do this transition. So at the time... The team at this point is four of the original five X-Men. We've got Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Iceman, and Angel... And Beast is off with the Avengers. And we also have Havoc and Polaris. Uh, we mentioned them in a previous episode. Havoc is Cyclops's kid brother. He sh- first showed up in X-Men number 54 and joined the team a little bit after. Uh, like Cyclops, he shoots energy blasts. His sort of come out of his whole body as a result of which he has the worst hat of the Marvel Universe. But some of the best special effects for his powers... And then we also have Polaris, Lorna Dane, who's the on-again, off-again daughter of Magneto. I think in current continuity, she is, in fact, his daughter, but they she might go right back now. again. Yeah. Um, she first showed up in X-Men 48. She was briefly a villain, again, being manipulated by Magneto, and jumped in and joined the team. So these six have gone off in search of a powerful new mutant on the island of Krakoa. They are ambushed, their powers start screwing up, and psychic contact with the professor just cuts off completely. Right, and so Cyclops shows up uh, back at the X-Mansion saying, holy crap, A, I don't have I-beams anymore. He might not have said the word I-beams, but I would have. And B, my teammates are all captured. This isn't cool. he doesn't just show up. He actually wakes up on the Stratojet. This is pre-properly named Blackbird. 
completely beaten up with his powers more broken than usual with the jet already on autopilot back to the X mansion. And that's going to be important later. Yes. So very mysterious and suspicious where the issue actually opens is with what Professor X does next, which is to recruit a bunch of all new, all different X-Men. Now, again, these are characters who are really closely associated with Chris Claremont, who's the writer who's going to be taking over the series with the next issue. Right now, they're all Len Wein and Dave Cockrum creations, with one exception. So first of all, the new kids. These are guys who were created whole cloth, mostly for this series. So first of all, we have Nightcrawler. Now, Nightcrawler, Kurt Wagner. That's right, Kurt Wagner. If you call him Wagner, you are straight up wrong. Damn straight. So Nightcrawler, uh, he's one of the more well-known X-Men. Um, because he's awesome. He's been with the team almost from this point. He was dead briefly, as we, I think we touched upon at the beginning. But uh, he's, he's fine now. now. Yeah. So he's this blue guy from uh, from Germany, and he was in the circus as the Nightcrawler, which was sort of his circus name that he kept when he joined the X-Men. He's a teleporter, which means he can disappear from one place and go to another. Now, when Nightcrawler does this, there's this big bamf sound effect that was there from the very, very beginning, which is actually one thing we'll keep coming back to. These characters, despite the fact that they just showed up, most of them, or just became prominent in this issue, a lot of the stuff about them is set from the start. There's none of that sort of like struggling to find what makes them who they are like there was at the beginning of the Silver Age. Yeah, in this, each of them has a roughly like two to three page origin, ending with Professor X finding them and inviting them to come join the team. Those are all pretty much the characters' origins, and they're all really good intros to what they're going to be like, how they're going to fit into the team dynamics. This is the intro to a a sort of new, not only a new team, but a newly character-driven era of the series. Now, Nightcrawler's intro I really, really love because I cannot get enough of, uh, like, sort of Silver Age angry European mobs. And once again, we get another of them chasing Nightcrawler with pitchforks and torches. My favorite thing about this mob, though, is that unlike the generically anachronistic Eastern European peasantry who are going after Scarlet Witch and um, Quicksilver in the Silver Age, these guys, this is a business casual mob. Right, so it's like they have these sharp green suits that are like nicely accessorized by pitchforks and torches. Um, it's impressive. You know, they've, they've really put in some effort to put themselves together for this lynching. So Xavier rescues Nightcrawler using his telepathy uh, to stop the mob from, from mobbing at him, and Nightcrawler says, sure, I'll join up. The next original character who we meet is Storm. When Xavier finds her in Kenya, uh, she is a weather goddess. And Storm is awesome. Her origins are really iffy, and they're iffy for reasons that relate to Marvel's really dubious relationship with Africa and Africa's cultures and the fact that, for example, there are plural cultures in Africa, um, which is not really a thing they worked out until maybe the mid to late 80s. It's like that t-shirt that just says, Africa is my favorite country. And for further reading on that, um, culturally in her portrayal, she is the first black X-Man. Cheryl Lynn Eaton, who blogs as Digital Femme, has written some really amazing articles on Storm and Storm's portrayal relative to race in comics. We're going to link to those. You should read them because they're terrific. Yeah, so Storm is actually an amalgam of a couple of characters um, that... Dave Cockerman created. There was Black Cat, who pretty much looked like Storm, but had this very feline face and did not have the cat. Yeah, she had, a, she had a cat hat. Yeah, I'm not sure where they would have gone with that. I'm kind of glad they didn't. And then there was uh, the, the sort of cape came from this uh, Jean Grey costume proposal, which was like disco Jean Grey. It was actually kind of awesome and kind of terrible simultaneously. It's amazing. It's a really good thing they didn't use that whole costume, but it's a great cape and it's a good thing Storm kept it. And her powers were from a different character who Cockrum pitched, who got rejected for the series, whose name was going to be either Tempest or Typhoon. And going back to Nightcrawler a bit, Nightcrawler 
Nightcrawler was was actually not created for the X-Men originally. He was part of a pitch for a series called The Outsiders, um, which was going to be a Legion of Superheroes spinoff. Right, for DC. And you can see some of the original art, and Nightcrawler is exactly the same character. The appearance is the same, the costume is the same, like he is visibly identical to the way he ended up in X-Men. Yeah, we have the fancy hardcover Uncanny X-Men omnibus, which is what we've been, we're reading out of for this one. And um, it's got a bunch of the character designs and Cockrum's design notes in the back, and we cannot recommend that highly enough. It is so cool. Also, it's really heavy, so if there's like a spider, that spider is dead under that thing. Fuck you, Peter Parker. Oh man, now I feel sad. You should. Oh, I feel sad a lot. Next, we have Colossus, Piotr Rasputin, although he goes by Peter sometimes. He's still Peter at this point. They don't actually figure out, they, they don't actually change his name for a while. So sort of a Slim versus Scott Summer situation then. Pretty much. So we see Colossus first uh, at home on the Ust-Ordinsky Collective Farm in Russia, which I just want to say over and over and over with my presumably terrible Is pronunciation. Is that your Russian voice? No, it's just my enthusiastic voice. Okay. If I was in Russia, I'd use the same voice, so I guess kind of. Huh. So we have Colossus. Uh, his origin's a little bit less involved. No angry mobs, unfortunately. He's on a farm, doing farm things. Then he sees a runaway tractor. Does, does that actually happen, Rachel? Do tractors just run away like that? Don't tractors move really slowly? I guess this one's faster. Well, anyway, maybe they do things differently in Super Russia. Super tractor. In Soviet Russia, something, something. So this, this, this tractor is like uh, barreling toward his sister, Ilyana Rasputin. She's going to become a major player later, but for now, we're just going to ignore her. For now, she's just uh, almost tractor bait. Yeah, she doesn't um, even have a name yet. No. Uh, so, uh, yeah, she's just sort of playing with a doll like in the middle of a big Id- idyllic Russian farm field. Being, a, being an adorable, generic blonde girl in peril. And um, Colossus is like, there's there's a, a, a tractor heading toward my sister. Should I lift her up and take her out of the way? Nah. I'm going to turn into metal and punch the shit out of that tractor. We respect Colossus. He's a good dude. I like that logic. His mutant powers. He's also like 17. Like he is, he is like the ultimate like sweet teenager who just wants to, who who just wants to like help people and do good things. And I don't know if that always comes across in the art because he's like this huge muscly dude and he, he's drawn to look a little bit older in my opinion. Yeah, he he definitely is. is. And he's, he's, he's pretty young though. He's like, he's in his late teens. He's kind of the, yeah, he's like the less goofy Iceman of the new X-Men team. He's not really goofy so much as kind of innocent and just really nice exactly like he's he's sort of a largest friendly metal puppy who can punch tractors i've never been a dog person but you're convincing me uh so yeah his his power is that he can basically uh turn his skin into metal now what's kind of weird is it's not just like now i'm sort of silvery looking and really hard like he has these sort of metal bands over him which i don't even know how the hell that works but you know what it's x-men so we're just gonna let that one slide so he joins xavier also the final member of the team, and man, I got stuck with all of the really problematic characters this time, um, is Thunderbird. The final new member of the team, anyway. The, the final, right, the final original newly created member of the team is um, John Proudstar, Thunderbird. Oh, man. Speaking of racially and culturally problematic characters, oh my god, I, I, don't, I don't even know where to start with Thunderbird. Thunderbird is Apache, and he is, um, again, the, the book we're going at has, has a, a version of the original design of his costume, which is kind of generic and cool looking, and when they decided that he was going to be Native American, they threw on every single generically appropriate of First Nations detail they could think of. So, you know who he reminds me of is um, T-Hawk from Street Fighter? Yeah, I think they've even got the same haircut. They kind of do. And his, his powers, he's super strong, he's um, super fast, he's effect, and he's super angry, and in a lot of ways... Is that a power too? No, not, not in this. Okay. It's a, it's, a, it's a Hulk's power. So Thunderbird being super strong and super durable and super cranky is kind of redundant to another character who we're going to come to later 
to Thunderbird's immense detriment, which may be why he only survives three issues. He's uh, he's the first big death in the uh, the sort of modern age of X-Men. We'll get to that in a little bit, though. So those are the new kids, but we've got three more characters who we've actually seen before, um, who've shown up previously either in X-Men or Marvel Universe in general. The first one of those is Banshee. Banshee, um, Sean Cassidy, is an affable Silver Age antagonist turned erstwhile ally. He first showed up in X-Men 28. He reappears a few times during the Silver Age, and he's basically just a really good dude. Yeah, he's one of those weird Silver Age characters where there's really nothing all that exciting about them, but they just sort of happen to show up and end up kind of working out better later than they do when they first show up. Like, when when he first shows up, he's mind-controlled into working for this utterly forgettable villain called the Ogre and ends up like stealing some paintings and then the X-Men stop him and break his hat that controls his mind. He's got he's got sonic powers. He can he can scream, he can break stuff with it. He can he can fly by screaming. Which is bad science but also really awesome. Bad but awesome sums up so much of X-Men in general. Oh god, it, it sums up so much of superheroes in general. <laughs> um and Benchy is is a little bit older than the rest of the team or at least than the rest of the team comes off. That's sort of something that comes up a few times. He's kind of the grown-up of the group in a lot of ways. Now, I feel like we should talk a bit about Banshee because of the new X-Men, he's the one that everyone always forgets about. He's not super exciting. He doesn't have a huge chip on his shoulder about the world. He's not confused and tortured. He does have a really horrible phonetically written out Irish accent, which is, as defining characteristics go, a little bit, well, actually not that special among these X-Men because we're about to jump into the age of, of Claremont accents. When he says fine, it's spelled F-O-I-N-E, which delights me. Why would me. you do that? You know, it's the 70s. People weren't really sure Why what Why would doing. you make that choice, Len Wein? <laughs> we, we like Banshee. Banshee's underrated. Unfortunately, he's also dead. Yeah. Um, but not yet. That's true. Right now, he's doing just fine. So so you know who is who is even better? Who is absolutely delightful in this? Shiro Yoshida. Sunfire. Oh, Sunfire man. is delightful. I Sunfire love him. Sunfire is amazing. Now, Sunfire, like, we were kind of surprised as we were talking about this, uh, this storyline to find that even though Sunfire is only there, like, really briefly and does pretty much nothing, we love him because he's just awful. He is an absolute unrepentant asshole. Right, so he shows up uh, in Silver Age X-Men and is just like a dick, and then uh, a couple times later, just in random parts of the Marvel Universe, um, so his opening line is from X-Men 64, Ants! This is a land of ants, of smug and smirking insects, but soon they shall know the ominous tread of sunfire! And that's basically how he talks all the time, including when he's a main character. He's amazing, he's complete, he's bombastic, he's ridiculous, he hates everybody. Yeah, so like I think the original idea was he was supposed to be sort of the Japanese equivalent of the X Men. Like his um, his father was uh, killed in one of the nuclear blasts in um, in World War II, I believe. And the idea is that originally all mutants, uh, essentially their parents, were somehow involved in radiation. They sort of stopped talking about that after a while. But yeah, so he shows up. Professor X recruits him, um, and there's no like angry mob or anything. He's just like, "Hey, Sunfire, can you give me a hand?" And Sunfire's like, "Fuck you," but okay. Yeah, Sunfire kind of goes back and forth. I think he changes teams like four times in Giant Size X Men number one. Well, yeah, there's there's this one part when they leave for the mission. The, the new X-Men after they've all been assembled and given costumes. And Sunfire has grudgingly agreed to come along. And then, like, they're on their way, and he's like, you know what? Screw you guys. I'm leaving. And then, like, later on in the same page, he's like, hey, guys, I'm back. And Except like, he does that. He comes back when they're already flying there and makes them open the jet mid-flight to let him back on. He's both aggressive and passive-aggressive. Sunfire is delightful. Yeah, um, so at one point, he's in one as a single conversation with Nightcrawler. He refers to him as Misfit three times in, like, ten sentences. On one page. That's dedication is what that and is. And then he quits the team again. I love this guy. So the last one of the the characters they're pulling from the the universe is this is this minor Hulk villain who um, shows up for two issues mid Incredible Hulk. Um, the last time he's a, a Len Wein creation. The last time we we'd seen him, you know, in the Marvel Universe was Hulk one eighty one, where he gets cut, tossed across Canada. I think he gets punched across Canada. He gets punched across Canada. 
And he is a scrappy little fucker, best known for having big metal claws. This is Wolverine. No, we, we kind of wanted to see how long we could go without mentioning Wolverine. but Not counting point, the cartoon inevitable. episode. But yeah, so this is so Wolverine is now officially here. He's on the X-Men and we will never, ever, ever be rid of him. <laughs> um, Wolverine is at this point. Yeah, he's got he's got adamantium claws. He's pissed off. He is working when Professor X finds him. He's working for the Canadian government. And Professor X gets him to come away and be a free agent. This is going to come back and bite him in the ass repeatedly over like the next dozen issues um, because the Canadian government is really unhappy about it. And in the Marvel Universe, the, the Canadian government is super militaristic and hostile. You're like, yeah, who knew? I mean, Canada, they're just sort of our chill neighbors to the north, not in the Marvel Universe. They've got like robots and supervillains aplenty. Canada has, a re- has, Canada has agendas, man. It's true. So Wolverine, we mentioned that a lot of the, char- the characters are pretty much fully formed at this point, and that's kind of the case for Wolverine. He's a dick, but, you know, he tends to do the right thing when he when he feels like it. He's aggressive all the time. He hates authority. He's, you know, the same character that we will have for the next many, many decades. And if this description sounds familiar, that's because he's a lot like Thunderbird. They are functionally redundant at this point, and again... That's going to end poorly for one of them. Right. Well, the one of them without badass looking claws specifically. Yeah. So anyway, back to the plot. The all new, all different X-Men train up. They argue a lot. And then they go to Krakoa, the island that walks like a man. The island that walks like a man. Krakoa is awesome. (laughs) It's basically like a big Jack Kirby monster. And there's very little explanation. They're just like, hey, look, it's an island, but it's really this entity. And they, they, they go a little bit into why. But the important part is it's a big island that they have to punch and shoot lasers at a lot. Uh, Yeah, you described it as like a Jack Kirby monster, and honestly, if I hadn't known, I would swear that it was a Kirby design. From the name to the drawing, Krakoa is awesome. So yeah, what's going on, uh, we find out, is that, um, so the original X-Men went there, you know, the the slightly modified original X-Men with Havoc and Polaris and No Beast. And they went looking for a specific mutant. They didn't know who, just that there was a strong signal. And it turns out that signal was, in fact, Krakoa. So Krakoa first first sets up a bunch of traps and pitfalls. It separates the you know, separates the X Men and forces them to fight you know one or two at a time. Shows off all of their powers and how they interact. So let's think about this for a moment, right? So Krakoa is an island, but it's also like a mutant. So essentially, the X Men are fighting on the body of Krakoa to get to Krakoa, and so he's setting up all these traps. Like, how does that work? Is that like tying little Gatling guns to your finger hair or something? I assume it's more like an immune system. I'm thinking of the episode of the of Batman the Brave and the Bold where Aquaman has to go punch Batman's innards. That's a good thing to think about. It's a great thing to think about. So they, it's my happy place. They get to Krakoa and they fight it, and they do find, in fact, that the original X Men are all like, well, not tied up. They're sort of like uh, they have these weird sucker tentacle things attached. They're to They're attached to vines, and what it turns out is Krakoa feeds Krakoa, like Sauron the uh, Hypnoterodactyl, feeds on mutant energy. It turns out to have freed Cyclops specifically so he can go lure more mutants back, which is exactly what he did. So they're super screwed. So the new X-Men are here. They're like, whoa, wait, do we sign up for this? I don't know. Let's punch some stuff and shoot some lasers at stuff. And boy, do they. The fight scenes, we mentioned Dave Cockrum is the artist on this issue. And Dave Cockrum is the definitive Bronze Age X-Men artist. And he is fantastic. And his fight scenes are just stellar. And there's one in particular when they're they're all fighting Krakoa. Um, oh, the, the big one? The big one, yeah. This is this is about half a page, and it's got it's got my favorite captions in the issue. Mere words could never begin to describe the sheer unbridled savagery of the battle that follows. So we won't even attempt it here. It's like, and so it's wait. a really good thing comics are a visual medium. But the panel that goes with this is like this super badass battle thing that like I want a poster of it or like I want to buy a van just so I can put it on the side of that van. Oh man, yeah. There's there's not a lot in this issue that isn't designed to be airbrushed on the side of a van. One of the things that it took the Silver Age a little bit of time to find, they know from the start here, which is what is awesome about fight scenes. Okay, so awesome thing number one is you take characters with really weird powers you wouldn't expect 
to go to get to go together and you have them sort of like team up and thing two is you have a really really big thing that everybody can fight at the same time so you have these like giant panoramic panels of just carnage and chaos and violence and amazingness yeah the x-men at their best are all about really cool teamwork most of their signature moves are team-up moves you have things like the fastball special it's going to show up much later this issue really gets that it pretty much always has them at least paired and then the big climactic fight scene is really and everyone has to use their powers in interesting and interactive ways to fight them and the way they finally take down Krakowitz, speaking of interesting and interactive oh, this things is amazing They've gotten back the original X-Men who were trapped. Polaris and Storm team up. Uh, Professor X gets into Krakoa's head and sort of buys them a little bit of time. Storm supercharges Polaris. And Polaris uses her powers to send this like magnetic pulse down to the freaking Earth's core. Literally, there's a diagram. And, and somehow what this does is this this basically severs gravity from the entire island of Krakoa because X-Men physics. And launches it into space, which is the best solution to any problem ever. Right. It's like, oh, your, your bank account was overdrawn. Just launch your bank into space. They, they actually describe it like when you have a bar of soap in your hand and it slips out. Like, that's the way, that's the mental image that they have. Seriously? The oh, they totally do. Oh, God, that's awesome. This is something I brought up in context of the Silver Age, and it took them a few issues there to get the hang of it, but Havoc's powers are the coolest, visually. Yeah. I mean, they're not the best powers power-wise, but just on the comics page, in terms of interacting with the medium, in terms of looking really rad, and in terms of looking really innovative... There's nothing that comes close. So actually, uh, to briefly describe, so Havoc's powers look awesome. You know what doesn't look awesome? Havoc's hat. I'd say it's the worst hat in the Marvel Universe. What do you think? I'm with that. What would you say is the best hat in the Marvel Universe? That is totally Galactus. So they all fight Krakoa. They launch it into space. Um, They survive the resultant whirlpool, which is the kind of thing that happens when you rip an island out and launch it into space. And they head back to the Institute with one lingering question. What do you do with 13 X-Men? This is our audience participation of the week. You tell us, listeners, what do you do with 13X-Men? I I feel like half of these entries are not going to be fit for print. What don't you do with (laughs) 13X-Men? Okay, so this is Giant Size X-Men number one. And this this is is solid canon, right? This is what introduced a new team. Obviously, they're not going to go back and change this. This is is one of those set-in-stone fixed points in continuity. Well, it sure is for about 30 years. And then... Then, about 10 years ago... Uh, You see a comic called Deadly Genesis. Deadly Genesis was written by Ed Brubaker, and we weren't going to talk about it for a really long time, except that it is a straight-up retcon of Giant Size X-Men number one. Right. So we find out that it's not just a simple, let's get the team together story. In fact, there's all this darkity, terror-y, doom, doom, doom. Fair warning before we launch into this, Deadly Genesis is going to open a lot of doors that we are going to leave ajar and then not revisit for a while. This is where we start talking about the Summers family. Oh boy, we'll be coming back to that for years, probably. What changed? What actually happened? Okay, so it turns out, you know, yes, Xavier did gather this team of international X-Men to go fight Krakoa and rescue the originals, but we find out in Deadly Genesis that unbeknownst to everybody except him, there was actually a team that he sent to Krakoa before that. So let's go back and just look at this sequence of events. What stays the same is that he's got the original X-Men, they go to Krakoa, psychic contact breaks off, they get stuck there. But instead of going and recruiting an all-new different team, he goes to a woman named Moira McTaggart. So Moira McTaggart, uh, who, if you've seen the X-Men First Class movie, you've seen a version of... Yeah, we're going to ignore that version. She is irrelevant to our purposes, and she sucks. This is proper Moira. She's been doing uh, research on mutants in Scotland, and she's an associate of Professor Xavier's. They've worked together and shared research and that sort of thing, and she's been... Not exactly training her own team of mutant superheroes, but she's been basically taking taking care of some mutants, doing research on them, sort of helping them get rehabilitated because most of them have shitty pasts. Uh, she's Her base of operations is in Scotland, but she's actually got a second facility in New York a couple hours from the Xavier Institute, and that's the base of operations for her ragtag group of new students. She's also Professor Xavier's ex, which is only tangentially relevant. 
relevant to this except that it makes what he does even shittier. So, uh, yeah, she at this point, she has four students slash patients slash whatever. Um, there's uh, this kid named Vulcan who's got these sort of energy manipulation powers. It's his code name. His actual name is Gabriel, and no one knows what his last name is at the beginning of the story. Ominous, ominous. Yeah. Um, there's a woman who goes by Sway who has, like, time powers. Another woman that goes by Petra who has sort of earth manipulation powers. And there's a fourth character who, again, you might recognize if you've seen the first class movie because he's pulled from this story. His name is Darwin, and he dynamically adapts to any threat. Which is actually a really cool power. Like, it's an you know, awesome power. It, it's it's literally the best power. Pretty much. He's, he's essentially indestructible. And so, yeah, she's taking care of them, and Xavier's like, holy crap, Moira, my X-Men disappeared, and I lost psychic contact with Jean, which, like, never happened, so it's freaking me out. I need to borrow your, your students. And Moira goes, um, what? No, that's a terrible idea. They're not superheroes. They're a bunch of fucked up kids, and also you're kind of terrible. And Xavier says, well, why don't we let them choose? And of course, like when a telepath says that, you should probably be a little worried. Well, he doesn't actually manipulate them at this point. He basically goes up to them and is like, you guys know the one positive example of mutants you've been seeing on TV? Do you want to go save them and be superheroes? Do you want to wear an X on your belt? And they're like, shit, yeah, we do. Because they're teenagers. Yeah. And so Moira's like, well, okay, it's their choice. I don't like this. And it's well that she shouldn't like it because Xavier, so he does this sort of like super fast training thing where he goes into their minds and trains them psychically. So for them, they've been training for months, but only a few hours in the real world. A few days. Um, Something like that. Yeah. One of the things that he does after that is take Vulcan aside and tell him something that the rest of the team doesn't know. It turns out at this point that X has actually met Vulcan before. He's met the whole team before he's visited them a few times. But once he took Cyclops to visit, specifically to introduce him to Vulcan and to have the two of them, you know, spar and hang out, generally to be sketchy about that. So, and and, and he's generally kind of sketchy about why, but it's played as really significant. So what we find and what he tells Vulcan is, oh, by the way, you're Cyclops' brother. And Vulcan's like, wait, what? I don't know anything about my past, except that it involves a lot of crazy experimentation that I've never told anyone. And maybe space. This is where we're going to get into the Summers Brothers thing. So at this point... Marvel has been teasing a third Summers Brother since, I think, 1993. For a long, long time, like any character who was an orphan or had a mysterious backstory basically had probably also a Summers Brother written at the bottom of their bio. Right. Like at one point, they were saying it was maybe Gambit. At one point, there was a character who I can't wait to get to, Adam X, the Extreme. He has a skateboard and he makes people's blood explode. He's covered in knives. He's amazing. But uh, yeah, so He's extreme. this was the sort of official uh, declaration that this guy, yes, he is the actual third Summers Brother. So let's talk about how exactly that happened. So Scott and Alex are orphans. When they were little kids, they were out camping with their family in their, um, their father was a, a pilot, an Air Force pilot, and, a, and also a, a hobbyist pilot, and they had, had this plane, which for some reason I know was a, de Havilland, a, a decommissioned World War II de Havilland mosquito, because that's the kind of information that I keep in my brain instead of useful stuff. I did not know that. Yeah, and now you do. <laughs> Explained. And the controls go out, the plane starts to crash, one of the parachutes is damaged, so they strap the kids into one, tell Scott to hold on to Alex, throw them out of the plane, they crash. Except, it turns out that what really happened, because Marvel Universe, is that they were attacked and abducted by aliens. They being the parents. Scott and Alex just plummet to the ground. Right, and so they're captured by this alien race called the Shi'ar, who's going to become very, very important as time goes on in the X-Men universe. 
And uh, basically, they're enslaved by the Mad Emperor Deken, who throws Cyclops' dad into prison and takes Cyclops' mom, as they don't say it, but effectively a concubine. What no one knew until it was retconned in X-Men Deadly Genesis is that Cyclops' mom was pregnant when they got abducted. Right. And so basically, that's a kid Vulcan, Gabriel. It gets even worse because then she gets killed, as does apparently her nearly to term fetus, except he doesn't. Right. Did I mention that Deadly Genesis is really dark? Because it really is. It's super dark. It's so it's so dark. God. And it's right after it's right after all the mutants get depowered, too. So it's basically it's like the Jude the Obscure of X-Men stories. Like, how can we make this? How can we make these characters lives so much worse? So we used to play this uh, fantasy board game called Hero Quest uh, that, that you may have heard of. And uh, there you, you draw these random traps and sometimes you can draw multiple of them. So like um, occasionally you would find that you fall into a pit trap. And then also a shallow hole. It's like insult to injury. It's like, wah, wah. So believing that his his wife and kid are dead, Christopher Summers, uh, Cyclops and Havoc's dad, gets really pissed off. He decides that he is going to escape and become a space pirate. We're going to come back to him in a couple episodes. But for now, we're going to follow what happened to that fetus who turned out to be viable. Yeah. So he gets sort of kept as a servant by the Shi'ar. Well, he gets artificially aged, which is how he's only about a year younger than Alex, despite having, you know, been barely conceived when Alex was like five or six. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he he sort of spends the first uh, bit of his life after this artificial aging as uh, a slave to the Shi'ar and uh, the only person who ever is nice to him when his mutant powers manifest, he accidentally burns her to death. Gabriel's had a really shitty life. And so then he he crashes or he, he, he ends up on Earth. He escapes because he's sent to serve the Shi'ar liaison on Earth. Um, he escapes. He's living in the sewers. He gets picked up by the cops. Mora comes and gets him out of prison. And he, he idolizes, idolizes the main X-Men. Especially Cyclops. And so after this, you know, this super fast psychic training, Xavier's like, oh, and by the way, if you fuck up, you know, that's that's your brother. That that guy who was totally your hero, who you're excited to get to meet once is your brother. And if you fuck up, he's going to die. Man, Professor X. Professor Xavier is a dick. So, yeah, the, these sort of new secret X-Men go to Krakoa and they all they, they do find Cyclops and they rescue him. And then as they're helping him get away, they're they, going. No, they help. They get him into the jet and they go back for the others. And they all get killed. Really graphically. Right. Like one of them gets just like cut in half by Krakoa. Yes, she does. It's really unfortunate. And so Cyclops, he's like super distraught, obviously. And he um, heads back to get help uh, from Professor Xavier. Oh, and no, Gabriel mentions to him that they're brothers before going back to get the others. So he knows this too now. Just a little bit of salt in the wound there. It's like, oh, sucks to be you. Yeah, and so Professor X, he's like, okay, uh, this isn't good. Cyclops is like the most fucked up he's ever been because he just saw his newly revealed brother die right in front of him and he thinks his team is all going to die. Including his other brother. Yeah. Uh, What's the most logical thing a person could do under these circumstances? I'm totally just going to rewrite his memory. And we're not talking just rewrite his memory of, um, you know, of the mission and of what's going on and of this other team dying. Like, so he he erases the knowledge of the other team existing. He uh, erases the fact that Krakoa was in d- did not, in fact, let him go. Like that was something Xavier made up as sort of an excuse to why he was back there. He not only makes that up, but he puts in all of the X-Men's head during the events of, of Giant Size Number 1, the idea that Krakoa is sentient and talks to them briefly. Yeah, so there's like this elaborate manipulation, which he then never mentions again. And so as far as the reader knows in the 70s, and as far as all of the X-Men know up until Deadly Genesis, you know, the simple version of this is what happened. New international team, send them to rescue the original X-Men from Krakoa, done. Not so much. So I'm going to go back, um, and this is this is, this is is one of those storylines that has become one of the definitive moral event horizons for Charles Xavier. And this is, I've argued before, 
that you can make a pretty good case for him being a villain. And this is definitely part of why. Um, I feel like his motives are pretty sound. He's distraught. He's fucked up. The kids he's been raising have all apparently, you know, two sets of them has, have, have just apparently been massacred. And he's frantic and grabbing at straws. But the thing about being as powerful a telepath as Professor X, and he brings this up a lot, is that he has to basically be on constant guard to not, you know, just accidentally manipulate everyone he meets. And this is what happens when he lets that slip. See, for me, like, I totally buy that, but I kind of feel like this goes too far with the character. Like, this is this is trying so hard to be grimdark that I think it compromises something kind of key to Charles Xavier, which is that above pretty much everything else except maybe, maybe his dream of mutants and humans living in harmony is how much he cares about the welfare of his students. I absolutely disagree. He cares about them a lot, yeah, but he is... And especially at this point in time, he is intractably paternalistic. He is there. There's a story later on where he he's trying to do stuff like reinstate a demerit system to, to get Wolverine in line. And he just he has a lot of trouble with the idea that the kids he's basically raised are now adults. Him deciding in a moment of stress and pressure to take the steps he does in this makes a lot of sense to me. Like that's for me, that's totally, totally consistent with the way the character has been written. But I kind of feel like, I mean, okay, yeah, maybe maybe Silver Age Xavier would do something like this. You know, he's coming fresh out of the Silver Age. But uh, he had developed such a close relationship with his students and with Cyclops between, you know, the 70s and the early 2000s. I kind of feel like he would have, I mean, yes, it's a very awkward discussion to bring up. Oh, by the way, I kind of erased your mind and you don't know about your dead brother. But it just doesn't seem like Xavier could, you know, keep a clean conscience and keep that secret forever. And that's the part I really don't buy. Mm, I disagree. Xavier is, you, you mentioned the dream, and Xavier is ultimately all about the greater good. He cares about his team, but I mean, he's taken a group of kids and basically raised them in a quasi-paramilitary organization. And I mean, I think I think Cyclops is the definitive example of of the kid who he just completely fucked up because oh, yeah. in in service to that dream. And this is, you know, I see this as kind of an extension of that. This is what happens if he comes clean on this. He loses the person who he's been grooming as his successor for a decade. He loses the trust of the team whose trust in him is pretty much essential to their ability to continue to go out and fight this fight that he's dedicated his life and by extension their lives to. I mean, I bet it, you know, it probably rips him up. But to me, this is totally, totally consistent with what we've we've, we've seen of the character up to this point and what we continue to see of him through the Bronze Age. Mm -hmm. One of those little lies become big lies things, except now it's big lies become enormous lies. Big lies become things we don't talk about. So, There's a lot of that with Professor Xavier. So yeah, there you have it. There's the origin of the all-new, all-different X-Men, and then the sort of other secret you didn't hear about it until years later origin of the all-new, all-different X-Men. And the way this is resolved, we should add, is that um, turns out that Darwin has survived and has, has basically allowed Gabriel to survive by temporarily merging with them. They get separated. Gabriel finds out about his origin, which he didn't entirely know before, gets really pissed off and rockets off into space to fight the largest space empire in existence. Now, that's one good thing that comes out of Deadly Genesis, which is that we see more insane X-Men space opera, which I never get sick of. Now, we've come back to this a couple times, and one of the reasons for that is that later this month, not next week, but the week after, we're going to be talking to Greg Rucka, who is writing the new Cyclops ongoing series. And in the new Cyclops ongoing series, it's, for complicated reasons, a young Cyclops from the 60s era who's been brought forward to the present meets his dad, who's a space pirate, and unlike when modern 
Cyclops met him is like, holy shit, you're a space pirate? That's awesome. You know what? My life is crazy. Can I be a space pirate with you? And Corsair's like, yeah, that, that sounds pretty great. And so they do. And it's great. Um, so again, that's going to be later this month. First, though, your questions. Our first question is from the Noir Guy on Tumblr, and he asks, Why have some members of the new giant-sized team stayed popular throughout the years while others were more or less forgotten? Specifically, why is Wolverine so popular? Oh, man. Um, okay, so I think for some characters, a lot of that can be attributed to the incredible Dave Cockrum design. So, like, you know, characters like Nightcrawler and Storm and Colossus are just, they just look incredibly cool. Like, you, you want to know what's going on with characters that look like that. But more importantly, they came to be, they came to fill a niche in comics that I don't think was really as filled. Like, we have we have this character Storm, who's this interesting mix of, like, an outsider and somewhat naive in the ways of the Western world, but also immensely regal and competent and impressive. She's really not that naive. Uh, they, they, you get that impression sometimes that she doesn't yeah. know about, you know, just like little generic pop culture things at least. She doesn't need to. Well, anyway. She's too cool. And then you get, you know, Nightcrawler, who's, you know, he, he looks like a monster, but really he's a swashbuckler and he's also kind of pious. Like, it's just, it's this combination of traits you don't see a lot. They're interesting and they're complex in ways that you don't see a ton of. But I think as far as the ones that, that don't work, so like Banshee, I mean, the fact is he's not a flashy character. He's and he's a, not all that interesting. He's a dude who basically has his shit together. He's in his, you know, 30s or 40s when he when he joins the team. He's a lot more, he's, he's, he's chill, he's adult. Right, so he, he doesn't have a lot of melodrama. I mean, he does have a haunted castle in Scotland, which we'll get to, or Ireland, rather, which we'll get to later, uh, full of elves. Um, but, uh, yeah. X-Men. <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't have that um, that sort of twisty, twisty plot that a lot of the characters do. And Sunfire, well, I mean... Well, and he, he doesn't have a lot that defines him, either. He's He's not... You, he's a lot harder to sum up in, in three or four lines. Right. And Sunfire, I think part of that's just that he doesn't stick around for long enough. Uh, same yeah, with, he's, same gone at the, he's gone at the end of Giant Size. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as for Wolverine, that's that's a really good and a really hard question. Um, I mean, I think part of it is, okay, there's a scrappy, angry dude with claws. Like, that's just kind of awesome immediately. He's this sort of anti-authority, kind of badass, you know, always has a comeback for everybody character. And that's fun. He's, he's like, fun. He's the guy who doesn't care what anyone thinks and will totally punch them if they say otherwise. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a, a power fantasy character. Now, I don't think that would have lasted nearly as long were it not for the other side of Wolverine, which, you know, you don't really see much here at the beginning, but he's got a really good heart, specifically um, anybody who he sees as sort of innocent but you know themselves with with potential like usually adolescent girls uh shadow cat jubilee and in, in we should add a fairly non-creepy way like that's something that's been pretty consistent and that i really appreciate is that that wolverine sets himself up pretty regularly as a mentor to teenage girls and it never ever ever goes to sex places right so like wolverine i mean essentially as a reader to the comic wolverine's your angry murder uncle like, uh-huh. I, there's nothing bad about that. Now, the character has certainly suffered a lot from overuse. I mean, you know, how many comics mm-hmm. is he in a month? Like, I think Deadpool may have him beat at this point, but for years, he was the most egregious example of that. And, I mean, I know, for example, like, I really like Wolverine as a character. I think he's a lot of fun. I enjoy him in a lot of comics. I have gotten to the point where I just sort of resent and dread him because he's so oversaturated. Mm-hmm. But when you actually get down to the character himself, he's a lot of fun. He's interesting. He's pretty three-dimensional. And he's got a combination of characteristics that makes for consistently fun and engaging stories. Part of that is that all of this, this certainly hasn't come up at this point. Um, because he's really, really old, his healing factor keeps him young looking. And because he's had his memories erased, you can go back and do all sorts of crazy stuff and basically insert him into any historical era. as like, oh, you know, there was World War II. 
and there was an angry guy with claws in it. Or, you know, there was this other event, angry guy with claws. In the cartoon, and Chris and I touched a little bit on it when we explained this, he's he's set up, he's a really good um, counterbalance to authority figures, or he gets set up as them. And so people tend to latch onto him as the fun guy as, as compared to the boring guy, who's usually, but not always, Cyclops. Right, totally. So our second question is from El Queso de la Muerte. And uh, it is, Hi Rachel and Miles, I'm relatively new to the X-Men, started reading around the Second Coming event, and also watched the 90s cartoon on Fox. I'm looking forward to you explaining all the crazy stuff that I missed. My question is, when did the powers don't affect family members thing start? Is that a modern trope, or has that been present from the start? Thanks. Well, first of all, props for jumping in with Second Coming, because that is that is going into the deep end. Um, and if you're still swimming, rock on, more power to you. Um... What you're talking about, powers not affecting family members, is something that's specific to Cyclops and Havoc. Um, they're brothers, and they can, um, they're can they mostly resistant to each other's powers. They can also absorb them. As far as I know, and I looked back through a bunch of Silver Age stuff this morning, um, because I was pretty sure it had come up in the Silver Age, but I couldn't find it. So I, I think this concept is actually introduced in Giant Size X-Men number one. Both of them have energy-based powers. Both of them, at various points have energy-based powers that to work require them to absorb ambient energy. And basically what it comes down to is that they can they can metabolize each other's powers. Now, what's interesting about that and what Deadly Genesis brings up is that that doesn't extend to their, their other brother. It doesn't, doesn't extend to Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel's powers work on both of them. Their powers don't really work on Gabriel, but that's because Gabriel's power is is energy energy absorption and redirection in general. And the general, the impression that I get at least is that he's going to be pretty much immune to or able to, to redirect powers, you know, any energy-based powers, whether or not those are folks related to him. As far as I know, there aren't any other characters who've, who've had familial-based immunity. Um, finally, uh, we have a third question that I'm actually going to crowdsource to you guys. Um, we have a listener who has a six-year-old daughter who loves Marvel Girl. Um, she read the first class stories about her. She totally impressed, like loved the character. And her dad was wondering if we could help her find some more um, all ages appropriate stories, X-Men stories in general, and X-Men stories about Marvel Girl in particular. We recommended a few titles, um, the Power Pack X-Men series and a couple other things, but we're hoping that some of you might know about books that we don't or you know, think of things that, that didn't come up. So if you if you know of one of those, if you've got any recommendations or, or even just specific arcs for really good all ages appropriate for a six-year-old Marvel Girl stories, um, please tweet them to us. Uh, tweet them to me at, at Ray Beta or stick them in the Ask box on our Tumblr or the comments on our blog. We would love to corrupt this child into uh, yes, the fold. Uh, so I think that's all we have time for this week. So next time, uh, you guys may have heard of a movie coming out called X-Men Days of Future Past, which is somewhat but not entirely based on a comic story by the same name. Now, we're going to be jumping ahead about 40 issues because this movie is coming out when it is, but we're going to talk about Days of Future Past, and that'll also be our introduction to alternate timelines and the multiverse. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland at the Roseway by Bobby Roberts. You can find his actual proper podcast at welcometothatwholething.com. We'll see you next week in the darkest timeline. (laughs) 